John chapter 17. We're continuing in our study on this chapter, which I've called the prayer of Jesus. It's the eve of the crucifixion. Jesus gives his disciples instructions before leaving the earth, if you will. And now he turns here in this key chapter to pray to the Father. And we are able to hear this prayer. So we've already discussed initially the first part of the prayer, verses 1 through 5. Jesus focuses on himself, that he would be glorified. Now the focus beginning in verse 9, is on those disciples. There are specific requests that Jesus makes on the behalf of his disciples. We'll cover at least one of them today, and the rest we'll pick up in the weeks to come, depending on our timing here. They're not... um, It may take uh, some more time and others less. There's six that I have noted here that I'll mention here in just a moment. But I think right now what's important is to remind ourselves again the context and the symbolism of what's going on here in chapter 17. Many have called this chapter the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. There are thousands of pages of commentaries on this very chapter. There are some preachers who have preached every single verse in this chapter. I was told that one commentator has written as many as 500 pages just on this single chapter alone. There's a lot here. We'll not walk too slowly through it, but we don't need to be in an extra hurry either. It's a significant passage. This terminology about high priest and Jesus being a high priest here is a significance that perhaps we don't think about carefully enough. Partly because, well, you don't know any high priests (laughs) except for some sort of pagan ritual, if you will, but what's high priest here, and how does it note? The folks that would have heard this at the time and read it shortly thereafter would be very familiar with the substance of Christ's prayer that fulfills all the symbolism that led up to this very point in time. The actions that Christ is doing are deliberate. He is functioning and demonstrating in real time his high priestly function for his people. A function which Israel knew about, they saw it in their religious practices, but here the reality of Christ engaging in a high priestly function is on display. Rituals in, in Israel were designed as intentional symbols to point to a future substance. That substance is Jesus Christ, who would fill all, fulfill all of them. 
In Judaism, if you remember, initially they wandered about and lived in tents in the wilderness. When they camped, right in the middle was a tent. You remember what it's called? The tabernacle. That term is used a lot in scripture. It's a, it's a place of worship. And the way that worked was you had all these folks camped about this central temple, tabernacle, a portable one. And in it had various veils and separation walls that were made. The most inner part of it was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. No one could go into that. In that room was the Ark of the Covenant. It's an ark that symbolized God's covenant with his people. Aaron's rod, the budded, was in there, in the ark, showbread, and the commandments. The people were prohibited from getting close And no one, even the priests, were not allowed in that little inter-sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. You can read about it in greater detail from Leviticus chapter 16. And it'll go through all of these details, which I'm just going to hit a few of the highlights. But verse 2 from Leviticus 16, I'll read it for you. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, that would be the priest, your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. That inner sanctuary demonstrated the very presence of God. God was with them in their camp. And even though the tent couldn't hold the fullness of God, certainly it symbolized that. And they were not just to walk in there willy-nilly. They would die, even the high priest Aaron. There was an exception. One day a year, the high priest could go into that most holy place and stand before that Ark of the Covenant And on the top, the very throne of God described as the mercy seat. That day is Yom Kippur. Perhaps you've heard about it. It's the day of atonement. It was a special day once a year. The priest would go into that room and first he would carry with him prayer. Take a coal from the altar and incense and present it before God. It it represented the high priestly prayer for the people. He would leave and come back again with a bowl of blood from the sacrifice and sprinkle that on that Ark of the Covenant on that very throne of God, which is described as the mercy seat. The blood propitiated or covered all of the laws that were broken by the people. Prayer and sacrifice were two key elements of this day. 
but they did it every year. For years and years and years and years, even to this day that we come to in John chapter 17. They made these sacrifices. They made these prayers. This continued on and on. And by the way, which you'll see in our text too, as we unfold it, the prayer and the sacrifice was not for the Egyptians. It was not for the Midianites. It wasn't for the Canaanites or any of the other ites that are around there. They were for one people, one people alone, and that was the people of God. That's who the prayer was for. That's who the sacrifice was for. It was for a peculiar people. Chosen by God. Now, efficaciously, I agree, it was only through faith, faith that God would provide because the blood of bulls and goats, we know, don't take away sin. Right? These were symbols and they were to have faith in God, but the prayer and the sacrifice were for those people who were to be covenanted with God. I'll look at a couple passages in Hebrews, and I promise eventually we'll get back to John 17, but I intentionally wanted to do an introduction so that this concept of what is going on in general would be in your mind. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He'll come back for a sacrifice. And we'll get to that in the next coming chapters, right? But Hebrews chapter 4. The writer, which by the way, I'm going to probably preach on Hebrews if we ever get done with John. I like to often go back to the Old Testament text and then to a new is how I typically switch back and forth but you get the best of both worlds in the book of Hebrews if you don't know the Old Testament you don't understand Hebrews Hebrews is a sermon if you will based on this Old Testament text at which he the the writer tells of Jesus Christ the fulfillment of all of it in fact you can see a glimpse of it and I'll just highlight a, a couple of passages here, not spend too much long, but you can go all the way through the entire book. It is all about Christ as seen in these Old Testament symbols. Chapter 4 in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Pick it up at verse 14. Since then we have the, a great high priest. Who is that? It is Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The imagery is there. The high priest, he goes through the what? The various veils into the most holy place. That's what that high priest did. But we have the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who goes straight through the veil of heaven. We are blocked off right now from heaven, right? In that regard. Jesus goes straight through. He is the high priest. We don't have a high priest that is then unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who 
in every respect has been tempted as it yet as we are yet without sin. He went to the greatest extreme, to the fullness, and never failed. Any temptation that you've been to, at some point you're going to break and fail. Remember who this Jesus is. He doesn't fail. No sin. He's sympathizing with us in that he came down and took on human flesh. He understands what it means to walk in your shoes, but yet this is our great high priest who has broken through the veil, if you will. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive what? Mercy. The throne of God is this mercy seat. Find grace and help in the time of need. The symbolic veil that created this wall of separation is torn in two, if you remember in the Gospels, from top to bottom. Because now it is open. The symbol is done. The substance is here. It is Christ. And it is through Him in Christ now, our great high priest, that we can come to directly to the very throne of God and receive mercy. Do you have mercy today? Do you want mercy? Do you want forgiveness? You will have it through Christ. That is the only one, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Come to Him. Glorify Him in the sense, praise to His holy name. All that, everything else set aside. Receive mercy in Christ who goes, opens this veil and allows us to boldly come with him to receive mercy. By the way, the Jewish high priest I alluded to, they never finished their task. There was no chair in the holiest place because they were never done. They'd come back year after year after year. They never ceremoniously sat down. Not the case with Christ. They didn't sit down because their work wasn't done. The symbol pointed to the substance here and now. Flip over to chapter 8. I'll just hit a couple more highlights. Maybe whet your appetite to read the book of Hebrews to prepare for days ahead. Chapter 8. Listen how it begins. Now the point that we're saying, and he goes through all this detail, and then up to here... The point that we're saying, summarize, is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the throne of the majesty in heaven. Christ sits down on the seat. He's done. It is finished. There is no work for you to do. Christ has done all. It is His blood that propitiates. The work is finished. There is no more. You don't take substances to receive and somehow receive grace. Ongoing, continuous. There is no continuous sacrifice. It is finished in Christ. In Christ alone. Every other sacrifice is continuous. Christ is done. He is seated. Chapter 9. Flip over one more chapter, verse 11. But when Christ has appeared, 9-11, as a high priest of the good things that have come, that is, that have now come, 
even though through a greater and more perfect tent, that's the tabernacle imagery, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer is sanctified for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator, that is the high priest, of a new covenant so that those who are called receive the promised eternal inheritance. And since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Whose death is that? It is Christ's death. The wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I would add, Him alone. This is the high priestly prayer in John 17. I told you, we'll get back there. So go ahead and turn now. I just wanted to get you some background so that imagery is in your mind as we talk about this to some degree. And some of these concepts will resonate in days to come. This is the prayer. Imaged by that high priest who would go in and offer first the prayer and second, the blood. It is time for prayer. It is the time for the high priestly prayer for his people, his disciples. And that's where we pick up in verse 9 of chapter 17 of John. And note carefully the wording. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All of mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak to the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because... They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let us pray. Indeed, Father, I pray that you will grant us insight by the Holy Spirit to hear the words of Christ 
this day. In his name I pray, amen. Now I have no time to go through this entire section. I did want to read it in your own hearing and to set this up. But in days to come, if you want to note this either in your mind or on the back of the worship folder, and again, I didn't know I, was, I knew I was going to go just to this first point, so that's all I included on the back of there. But if you wanted to write it down, today we're going to talk about this first section in verse 9. It is an exclusive manifestation of Christ's glory. That's what this prayer is for. That's number one. That his glory would be manifested exclusively in his people. He prays for them. And number two, a union with God through Christ. That they may be one as we are one, verse 11. Number three, for their eternal security, as he kept them, he prays that they'll continue to be kept. Indeed, that prayer will be answered. Christ's joy in them, as you noted in verse 13. Number five, their sanctification, 14 through 17. And then finally, it closes with a prayer for their mission, verse 18. Let's look at this first point from verse 9. Jesus Christ Prays for the manifestation of his own glory that is to be demonstrated in these disciples. He says, I'm, I'm praying for them, verse 9. I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for the world. This is contrary to popular opinion in our day. Jesus doesn't love everyone equally. Sorry. You know why I can tell you that? For a number of reasons, but I can tell you right here. He isn't praying for everyone the same way. He didn't pray for Judas, as we already noted and read in the text, the son of destruction, that would be son of the devil, of the world, world system. He didn't pray for him in the, in the way that he prayed for Peter. Both of them denied Christ. And one of them is under the wrath of God and one of them has been given mercy. Peter was given mercy. And there's only one reason his faith didn't fail. It is because, as Jesus quite frankly says, I have prayed for you. Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Can I tell you this, disciple of God? If you're a disciple of God right here and right now, Satan would desire to sift you as wheat every day, every moment of the day. He is your adversary. He is running around like a lion wanting to devour you. Guess what? It will not harm you. You will not fail. And there is one reason because not of your greatness, not of your goodness, not of your habits, your abilities, and your skill. It is because Jesus Christ prays for you. Are you glad he prays for you? He's a great high priest, isn't he? He says, I am praying for them. That's the imagery. When that high priest walks in with the incense and the coal and puts that symbolism on the most holy place in the very throne of God, it is because he is praying for the covenant people. Here, it symbolizes the truth. Who is he praying for? His disciples. And Jesus prays to the Father, not to the world. Not for the world, but for his own those who you have given 
me, he says. Now, and at this point, I have to stop sometimes because you may be challenged to some degree, but I hope you understand what he says. It's not the sense that he never prays for anyone. He did pray, um, we only actually know for sure, on the cross he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is, in their ignorance, they were um, killing the Lord of glory. In that sense, in that sense of a request, it isn't a request for the atonement of their sin. It might be a, a, a sense praying for their confession of faith, which some of them will, and their repentance. But this is rather, I would argue, in, there is a sense in which Christ would withhold judgment from people in general. He's patient. As Peter would say, he's not slow to fulfill his, his promises, but he's patient. He's patient towards you and not wishing anyone would perish, but that all would come to reach repentance. Yes, specifically, he's talking about he's patient for those that are his to come and confess Christ as Lord. But he's patient with the world every single day that they're not destroyed by fire. Because I assure you, the day of the Lord is coming. It'll be here at any time. Like a thief in the night, he would say, you don't know. And every moment that the wicked, that is, those who will not confess Jesus Christ as Lord, get another breath, that is his patience. And there is a certain prayer in that sense of demonstrating mercy and patience. What great mercy for the Lord of glory to hang on the cross and to hear this mocking crowd to carry on for the government of that time to think that they were actually in charge of all of this. For the people who hated Christ to think we have accomplished our mission. No, no, heaven is being held back at that moment by the prayers of Christ. Don't send the angels to destroy them yet. Let's wait. Be patient, if you will. Let's allow them to come and repent and believe. What great mercy. But it's his cup of wrath will overflow and flood the earth in fiery judgment. But Jesus Christ is interceding here in John 17, not in a general sense of just don't destroy them at this moment, but here in 17, it is a specific sense for his disciples. The Lord is far from the wicked, Proverbs 15, 29. Even the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to God, Proverbs 28, 9. Peter says in 1 Peter 3:12 that the Lord the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There are many prayers made by unbelievers to a god of their own imagination. And the fact that he doesn't destroy them at the moment for uttering such blasphemy 
demonstrates his patience, his mercy to them. He's not praying for unbelievers. He is praying for his own. Notice back in our text, I am praying for a specific people. And again, that gets back to this imagery of the high priest. I am praying for, note our text, 17, 9, and 10. I'm praying for who? Those whom you have given me. They're yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. An interesting way to to say this. He's covering all the bases, if you will. There's unique standing to these disciples and to all who would be truly in Christ. They belong to the Father. They're given to the Son. And thirdly, they continually belong to God the Father and God the Son. We've considered this idea, been over it a time or two, so I'll just briefly refresh your memory and move on. This idea of the Father giving to the Son, look back in verse 6 of our same chapter, remember we talked about that. Your people who you gave me out of the world. This is a common theme in John. You can read through it quite a bit. Notably, chapter 6, I'll hit a few verses for you, 637. He mentions, as we mentioned before, all the Father gives to me will come. 639, I will lose nothing, that is, they will not perish. I will lose nothing that the Father has given me. You've been given a gift before and you lost it because you're not a good keeper of it, right? And then you're frantically looking at it and you're glad you find it. Well, Jesus never loses anything. That's his promise. It's been given. It's a precious treasure. And I'm not going to lose it. I didn't have the ability to lose it. I have it. In John chapter 10, my Father who has given them to me, that's those that are in Christ, He's greater than all. God is supreme. He's above all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You have the imagery. Christ has it, the Son. And and this is just by way of illustration. It doesn't work exactly like this. It's just for us to think about. He's got it. He's not going to lose it. And guess whose hand Christ's hand is in? It's in the Father. And the Father's not going to lose the Son. And because the Father won't lose the Son, He's not going to lose you. That's what your eternal security is based on. He fulfills all that has been spoken. Chapter 18 and verse 9, the next chapter we'll find out, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now lest you think back to Judas, he's already explained it in this chapter, hasn't he, in verse 12. Judas was not one that was given in this sense of given. He was among the group. He was in the inner circle. He was thought most highly of. 
He probably would have been the one elected to the greatest office that they had. They couldn't imagine he got the first piece of morsel at the table and yet he was sent out. He wasn't given to him by the Father. Jesus will say in 10.28, I... My Father who is greater than all, no one's able to snatch him out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the oneness that he's going to talk about, which we'll pick up later on in this prayer. This oneness, this union with God in Christ. Notice verse 10. You have this phraseology, mine are yours and yours are mine. A little hard to read to some degree how that goes back and forth like that. What is he talking about? When we think of giving, if I gave you something, I may never see it again because because now it's yours. It's not mine. I gave it to you, right? Now you have it. I don't have it. The giving of the Father by those whom he has chosen for the Son is not a giving up. It's a joint possession in that sense. That's the illustration here. And of course, the church is thought of as the bride of Christ. And again, illustrations break down. They're just there to kind of help some aspects of it are true. And that's the imagery here. The Father gives to the Son. But He never gives up. It's always His girl. It's always His baby. I've given one daughter away. And it was a beautiful experience because in marriage... That giving away, it illustrates what is going on here. The father gives the bride to the son. But in the giving, it isn't as if he's never going to to see this cherished possession again. He always have it. July 26, 2014, I gave a girl away, but she gave me a momentum. You may be giving me away today, but I will always be your little girl. That's something I cherish. But it's also true. They were at my house the other day. I just get more. I've got grandkids now. (laughs) There's a greater fullness of it. And yeah, the the giving there is is like the giving here. The the Father doesn't abandon. It, It is just one more brought in. I now have a son, another son. And I have children and grandchildren and much more. That's the beauty here. This... Next section here, when he says, I'm praying for them, 
I'm praying ultimately that I would be glorified in them, verse 10. What does he mean by that? I'm praying for them that I might be glorified in them. That is, that Christ would then be manifested in the lives of those whom the Father has given to the Son. That Christ would have that kind of influence over them so that indeed they would become beautiful in Christ. They would begin to be more conformed to Christ and to look like Christ. That's, that's what he's emphasizing there. That's his prayer. That's his high priestly prayer for you. That you would be conformed to the image of Christ. Listen to how Paul talks about it in the book of Colossians to the church at Colossae. I'll read it for you. One twenty-six of Colossians. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Mystery, by the way, all of this wasn't clearly known until Christ comes. But this was all the plan all along the way. This is what all these Old Testament ritual was pointing to, to this very day. This mysterious, un, previously unknown, hidden as it's described, but now revealed to God's holy ones. To them, verse 27 of Colossians 1, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what he chose to reveal. This unique relationship that you have, this oneness with Christ this giving of the Father to the Son, this uniting with the Son that you may go boldly to the throne of grace. This is Christ in you described. It is indeed the hope of glory. It is Him then that we proclaim, teaching everyone with wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. What does mature mean? It means grown up. It means Becoming like Christ, growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. The goal here for those that are in Christ, in Christ's prayer for you, is that you would be a Christian. That you would be a little Christ. My son gave a graduation speech which I didn't hear until I heard it for the first time at his graduation. But now is my time to, since I embarrassed one daughter, I get to embarrass my son. Sorry, these are just illustrations that come recent. But I like one thing that he said, and I'll commend him on this. Everything else I didn't like, no. (laughs) The focal point of his message was, his graduation speech was, You know, you could be known for a lot of things. I'm an artist, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a plumber, I'm a carpenter, and go on and on and on, right? What you do. Or maybe it's your hobby, what you like. I like running and cycling, I like fishing, I like whatever. He says, what I want to be known for is, I want to be known to be a Christian. Do you? What a great thought to have in your mind. 
What do you ultimately want to be known for? Oh, that was a Christian. I met somebody that's like Christ. Can I tell you this? This is what Christ's prayer is for each one of you, that you would be like Him. That you would be like Christ. That Christ's glory would be manifested in your life. What does that look like? Well, a lot of things. Jonathan Edwards summarized it in three, I think, very key areas, not the only ones, but just a summary. One is to have true faith, to truly believe, to have genuine repentance. That means a heart that is continually confessing your sin, recognizing that he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, that that is a daily thought in your mind. And then finally, a pursuit of personal holiness. Something that's forgotten to a great degree in our day. This is what Jesus will allude to later on and we'll get to his sanctification. He prays for the holiness of his people. That they would be sanctified in truth. How do you become sanctified in the truth? His word. It's truth. The prayer of Christ here then, beloved, his high priestly prayer as he comes in into the most holy place of God, he is praying that you will have faith. He's praying that you will be faithful and have faithfulness. That you would truly trust, that you would believe, that your heart would overflow with gratitude, thanks, and thanksgiving. That in your spirit, a mean and hateful person like me, could one day be a little kinder, a little gentler, would demonstrate self-control. Every time you demonstrate that in your life, you, you are manifesting the glory of Christ, the Christ in you, the hope of glory. Humility. Submission. In ways that are appropriate for it. Service when called. Have hope, great boldness, courage, and conviction. Thanks, Isaac, for sharing the report from Canada. I was concerned about the church because I know what's going on there. But like Daniel, they'll throw the doors open and just pray anyway. They make a law against it. God could protect them if he wishes. Otherwise, he will demonstrate the glory. We serve God, not you. Oh, that the character of Christ's boldness, courage, conviction would be on display to be more like Christ. In fact, that's what he has called us to do. Predestined us to do, Romans 8, 29. To do what? To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that Christ would be firstborn among many, what? Brothers. Why, why are your brothers in that sense? Brothers and sisters. You're not talking gender there. But those that are children of God. Why? Because you look like Christ. You have a resemblance. There's something there. You have characteristics. You have features that look like Christ. What looks like Christ? 
all that we just talked about. Look to him. Beloved, it's Christ's prayer that his glory would be manifested in you. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that Christ would be seen more and more in our life, that we would demonstrate through the power of the Spirit the beauty of Christ. And may it be that which draws others with great appreciation and affection for him and him alone to find their source of sustenance and satisfaction in Christ. May he be exalted in all we do, even this day. I pray because it is the will of Christ, the hope of our glory. Amen. Take a moment. Think on these things. Respond directly to Christ the way he has spoken to you. If you haven't repented and trusted him, you can do it right where you are, not to me. I'm not the high priest. He is. Go to him. Take a moment now.